You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, Chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, for the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. In the city of Cephanium, Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. The people were spellbound by his teaching because he taught with authority and not like the scribes. There appeared in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit that shrieked, What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him sharply, Be quiet, come out of the man. At that the unclean spirit convulsed the man violently, and with a loud shriek came out of him. All who looked on were amazed. They began to ask one another, What does this mean? A completely new teaching in a spirit of authority. He gives orders to unclean spirits, and they obey him. From that point on, his reputation spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The first phase of our Lord's mission has begun. In last week's Gospel, we heard of him proclaiming the good news and announcing that the Kingdom of God was at hand. Writes a scholar. The phrase, Kingdom of God, points to God's saving action foretold by the prophets. That decisive intervention was now imminent. Jesus' proclamation was thus both glad tidings, evangel, and urgent challenge. The scene of his earliest public preaching is Galilee in particular the region around the lake, the Sea of Galilee. In his book, In the Steps of the Master, H. V. Morton opens one chapter with these words. Galilee is one of the sweetest words I know. Even were it possible to dissociate it from the ministry of Jesus, it would still be a lovely word whose three syllables suggest the sound of lake water lapping ashore. It's as soft as the word Judea is hard, as gentle as Judea is cruel. It is not necessary to visit the Holy Land to appreciate the rocky harshness of Judea or to hear the water falling from the oars in Galilee. And as Jesus walked beside the lake, we know that the people pressed upon him so that he got into one of the fishing boats and preached from there, after which he performed the miracle of the great catch of fish and called the fishermen, his first four disciples, to be fishers of men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They went as far as Capernaum, and as soon as the Sabbath came, he went to the synagogue and began to teach. Capernaum, or Capernaum, is now to be our Lord's base. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum on the sea coast. His adopted town was also that of Peter, who, with his brother Andrew, had left their native town of Bethsaida on the opposite shore of the lake. Capernaum was about 25 miles north of Nazareth. An ancient fishing town on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, uninhabited since the 8th century. So today's guidebook, which continues... Jesus returned many times to Capernaum from his preaching tours in the Galilee, making the town so closely connected with him that it was referred to as his own city. Matthew, in fact, uses just this phrase after his account of the episode of the demon sent into the herd of swine, which then charged down the cliff into the lake. 
He got back in the boat, writes Matthew, crossed the water and came to his own town. But in our Gospel today, Jesus is still a very new resident of Capernaum, if indeed he could be said to have been resident anywhere. The foxes have their holes, the birds of the air their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The town Capernaum today no longer exists, but in 1905 two German archaeologists discovered a synagogue, which some believed to be that in which Jesus preached, but now it's generally thought to be of the second century. In the curve of a small bay, a white temple hides itself among hedges and eucalyptus trees. The temple is the ruin of Capernaum's synagogue. There are four columns upholding a broken architrave, a paved court in which the grass grows, a doorway that leads nowhere, and the usual chaos of broken pillars and fallen stones. Most scholars now agree that this is all that is left of Capernaum. This white ruin among the eucalyptus grove is, I think, one of the most touching links with our Lord's ministry to be seen in the Holy Land. And as H. A. V. Morton comments, does it matter that this synagogue is not the actual one Jesus preached in? It was here that Jesus Christ lived during the two or three most important years in the world's history. Somewhere among the piles of black basalt that scatter the hillocks is the site of Peter's house, where our Lord lived. H. V. Morton was writing in the 1930s, but since then the archaeologists have unearthed several dwellings around the synagogue, and the modern guidebook tells us. Of special significance is the so-called House of Peter. Although there is nothing to identify its owner, its development into a fully recognised church indicates a strong tradition connecting it with Peter and with the activities of Jesus in Capernaum. And as for the actual synagogue referred to in today's Gospel, here is one last thought from our traveller. The synagogue must have been one of the most beautiful in Galilee, and the frequency with which it occurs in the Gospel story suggests that it was possibly the most important one on the lakeside. And so, let us go in and listen. The Spirit of the Lord has been given to me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, and to the blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free, to proclaim the Lord's year of favour. Ah, but these words of Isaiah were spoken in Nazareth, where he won the approval of all, and they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. Until he spoke other words, which upset their sensibilities, and the mood of the Nazarenes changed. As a scholar comments, Admiration turned to disenchantment, scepticism, and finally persecution. The fate of the Gospel is shown in this episode recounted by Luke to be welcome and then rejection. We don't know what Jesus said in the Capernaum synagogue on the occasion referred to in today's Gospel. The only sermon at Capernaum recounted in detail is that on the bread of life, which John recounts. But whatever Jesus said on this earlier occasion had a mesmerising effect. The audience was spellbound. Every priest who has to face a Sunday congregation must now and then dream of the day when his homely homily will hold his audience captive. But how many preachers have the gift of a John Chrysostom, nicknamed the Golden-Tongued? A common experience must be that of observing members of the congregation discreetly yawning 
or even worse, fast asleep with mouths gaping open. The biographer of Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins writes, Once, during the hot July of 1880, he thought he had moved his congregation to tears, but the following week he looked more closely and perceived they were merely wiping the sweat off their faces. Some churches, however, seem to attract brilliant preachers. That same year, we may read in a history of one Liverpool parish. Sundays saw a succession of great preachers ascending the pulpit to address immense crowds on the subjects of the day. People were flocking from all over Liverpool, so that parishioners had to come early if they would wish for a seat. So great were the crowds when Father Tom Burke, O.P., preached the school sermon in October 1880. None of the congregation that heard the ten o'clock mass could get out of the church by the ordinary way. They had to leave by the sacristy, the outer tribune, and by the back of the high altar. Even before the congregation was half out, the crowd had forced open the doors, and it was with difficulty that tickets could be collected, and many not having tickets insisted on coming in to pay. Similar events were not infrequent, and soon the locked doors of the church, the queuing crowds and unloading trams on a Sunday, were a well-known sight, until some years after the First World War. A very different picture is painted by contemporary preacher-poet R.S. Thomas, working in the remote Welsh countryside. Here is Service. We stand looking at each other. I take the word prayer and present it to them. I wait idly, wondering what their lips will make of it. But they hand back such presence. I am left alone with no echoes to the amen I dreamed of. I am saved by music from the emptiness of this place of despair. As the melody rises from nothing, their mouths take up the tune, and the roof listens. I call on God in the after-silence, and my shadow wrestles with him upon a wall of plaster that has all the nation's hardness in it. They see me thrown without movement of their oblique eyes. But in Capernaum on that May day in the year 28, the people in the crowded synagogue were spellbound by the teaching of the young rabbi, because, we read, he talked with authority and not like the scribes. And his teaching made a deep impression on them, runs another version. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. And the old Vulgate has, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for he was teaching them as one having power and not as the scribes. So, authority and power. The reference to the scribes, or doctors of the law, one note explains, is because they buttressed their teaching by quotation from the scriptures and traditions. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, emphasise this point, that Jesus taught with authority. And listening to him, the people realised this, writes Bargellini. They felt that it was not he who was serving the scripture, but Scripture was serving him. He didn't quote what commentators throughout the centuries had written about the sacred texts, annotating and explaining. He spoke in his own name, beating the words of the Bible like a smith, shaping them and rendering them incandescent. He was not a commentator on the law. He himself was the lawgiver. He did not explain the prophecies. He fulfilled them. He did not interpret the wise. He was wisdom. 
He did not pile word upon word. He was the word. In short, he was the authority, and he expressed himself as one who has authority. Authority and absolute authority was the chief requisite of the Messiah, of him who could teach and judge, save and condemn, not on behalf of others, but by his own authority. And a spectacular demonstration of this authority takes place in the synagogue at Capernaum, when the shrieking of an unclean spirit disturbs the assembly. What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? Although we are told of one unclean spirit, and all the versions use this same expression, it's as if it's representing the whole kingdom of evil, of the world of demons. What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? The evil spirit senses the holiness of the preacher and is, to say the least of it, uncomfortable in his presence. Moreover, it recognises that he is the Holy One of God. The biblical scholar comments. This term stresses the contrast of Jesus, who belongs to the sphere of God, with the world of impurity and of the demons. Luke had already given the title of holy to Jesus in chapter 1, where the holiness of Jesus was linked to the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary. Jesus, therefore, is the Holy One because he is the Son who has a special relationship with God, origin of all holiness. And at the shouting of the unclean spirit, Jesus acts immediately, ordering it to be quiet and leave the man. The powers of darkness have acknowledged the Messiah, but Jesus does not want a popular rising, a misunderstanding of his mission or of his kingdom. And as the unclean spirit throws the man on the ground, leaving him unharmed, the whole synagogue is in a frenzy of excitement. Everyone's talking at once. What does this mean? A completely new teaching, in a spirit of authority. He gives orders to unclean spirits, and they obey him. The clamour is deafening. The people are crowding around the man who is now on his feet and looking for the preacher who has healed him. But he's nowhere to be seen. He has left the synagogue and has slipped away, to the house of his friend and disciple, Simon Peter, where we shall meet him next Sunday. And meanwhile, as the Gospel reports... His reputation rapidly spread everywhere, through all the surrounding Galilean countryside. 